text today is Luke 9, sorry, Luke 20, verse 9 through 19. Although we are going to start reading at verse 1 of that chapter. It starts on page 1385 of the Bibles in the seats. So we are back in Luke's gospel, picking up right after the chief priests and the scribes had confronted Jesus on his authority to drive out the money changers and the merchants out of the temple courts. And we're going to reread that encounter where they confront him. And then we're going to cover Christ's teaching that immediately followed it. So we'll start on verse 1 of chapter 20. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the, priests, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him and they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, then he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. (coughs) But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, they said May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is it? Is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The scribes and chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Let's pray. On this Lord's Day, Father, we're... As we hear your son teach once again in response to being challenged by false teachers, we pray for edification. May his warnings to them guide us in proper doctrine and worship. Make us receptive to the truth found in these scriptures. Bless our gathering with your presence. May it be glorifying to you, faithful to the text, and helpful for your people. Send your spirit to work in us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the final parable that Luke has recorded for us in his gospel. And as a reminder, uh, we are in Tuesday or Wednesday of Christ's final week of ministry before his crucifixion. Came in on the triumphal entry on Sunday, cleansed the temple on Monday, and then Tuesday and Wednesday he spent preaching and teaching in the city. Went back to the temple courts. And Luke actually has a couple of chapters for us recording some of that content that he preached and teached in those days. So we're going to be covering those 
in the coming weeks. But like we noted last time, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders that were with them, they were too cowardly and they were too political to give an answer to Jesus' question about John's baptism when he reversed the confrontation to them. So then Jesus refused to give them an answer on their question about authority to cleanse the temple. And that's when this parable comes in. He has that confrontation. He seems to have just turned right to the people while the, while the leaders are still there right by him. And this parable that he tells immediately following that confrontation is not at all mysterious. It, uh, it's still allegorical, but it's not one of those parables that is meant to veil its meaning to unbelievers, like some of them were. And even though Jesus was speaking to the people, he's doing it in their midst of those leaders that confronted him. He's still directing this parable at them. He's talking to the people about the people like right here beside him. And they knew it. They knew that he was talking about them. And he began his parable by using the imagery from Isaiah 5, which we read where the Spirit of God has directed the prophet to write about Israel as a vineyard. Matthew and Mark record this same event, and they have an even more detailed retelling of the parable. It gives a little bit more of Jesus' words, and it includes direct quotations from Isaiah verse 5-2, where it describes the vineyard. Jesus uses the exact same wording about talking about the tower and the vat and the, the walls, planting the choice vine. He, he used that in the retelling of this parable, or he, he quoted from those, those verses when retelling this parable, not retelling the parable, when telling the parable, and Luke's recording of it is just a little bit more abbreviated, but there's no doubt here what he's referencing. He clearly has Isaiah 5 in mind. And in that passage, the vineyard that the Lord has planted is being condemned for not producing any good fruit, no good grapes, in spite of all the Lord has done for it. He says, what more could I have done for you? I did all these things, I set things up perfectly, and you're producing no good fruit. Unquestionably, the chief priests and the scribes would have known what Jesus was referring to. They would have known this text. They knew what the vineyard meant, what it referenced, because even they were not too dense to understand what verse 7 said in chapter 5, because it reads, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So you don't really have to put a lot of interpretive effort into figuring out what the vineyard is. It's Israel. So when it comes to the tenants or the, the vine growers who are supposed to help the vines in the vineyard to bear fruit, it is again a clear message that the religious leaders recognized as pointing to them. He's talking about us, they know it, they're supposed to be grooming, pruning, taking care of this vine, helping it to produce fruit, and they're not doing their job. That's what's going on. And they, of course, come off as not looking very good in the parable. When the owner sends a slave to collect his rightful portion of the fruit, they beat that slave, they send him away empty-handed. And then a second slave is sent, and he's treated shamefully, and is likewise beat up and sent away empty-handed. And then a third slave is said to be wounded and cast out. So there seems to be an escalation in the violence and the rebellion of the vine growers. As the owner of the vineyard sends more slaves, it, it escalates. They step it up. They get more and more violent, more and more rebellious. The slaves sent by the owners are representative of the prophets that are sent to, the, to Israel, to the people of God. They're, they're there to inform the people of their transgressions. Like, where is the fruit that you are called to bear? And they're like covenant lawyers. They, they come and they 
prosecute the people for having violated the terms of the contract. Just like a slave would. Where's the produce? And the vine growers say, well, there is no produce. We didn't, we didn't make any good grapes. And the slave would be like, the master has told you to do your job and produce good grapes from these vines. He set things up perfectly. Where's the fruit? What's your problem? And that's what, the, that's what the prophets are. They're covenant lawyers. They're coming and they're saying, here's the covenant. You're not keeping it. Where's the fruit? Where's the obedience? What's going on? Everything's set up perfectly for you. Why are you not producing fruit? And appropriately so, the chief priests and the scribes and the kings, really, bear the bulk of that responsibility. They're the ones that are supposed to be leading and training the people in righteousness, and they're not doing their job. So instead of lamenting and repenting and being corrected, they persecute the true prophets of God. The prophets come to prosecute according to the covenant, and in return, they persecute the prophets. They treat them shamefully and are violent toward them. And we saw that several chapters back in Luke 13. Jesus had already highlighted that fact. Remember when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. They have a history of this. They've come to expect it. This is their, this is their trademark of how they react to the people of God, the prophets of God. And that is why the Jewish religion was so corrupted. This is why they were so blind to the Messiah. This is why their temple courts were full of money changers and merchants. Like, how did it get that way? This is why they had violently rebuffed every corrective figure sent to them by God. God sends people into our lives to help correct us, and we, we have one of two ways we can react to that. We can reject it, or we can accept the correction. It doesn't feel good, but we get corrected and fix it. God sends people to do that. And that's what he did with Israel. He, he rebukes those that he loves. He admonishes them. He disciplines those that he loves. Without correction, their religious error devolved into heresy. We don't think of Jewish religion in terms of heresy. That seems like a, a new idea with the new covenant. It's not. It's heresy. What they fell into was heresy. It was false teachings about the Messiah. Their worship is replaced by that political power dynamic centering on the temple. Those, those chief priests and scribes that, that wanted the honor from the people and the places of respect, and, and they wanted their, their jockeying for position, right? Their, their, their teachers are replaced by those men that are jockeying for powerful positions in the temple and amongst the people. The vineyard was producing no good fruit, just like in Isaiah 5. You come to Judaism in the first century, it's producing no good fruit. They have false teachers leading the people, and they're failing at their job. So the owner of the vineyard makes one final appeal to the vine growers by sending his own son, his own beloved son, the text even says. Again, not a lot of mystery here on the references. And the hopes are that the significance of who he was the weightiness of who he represented as the, the very son of the owner, that would cause the rebellious tenants to respect him. As we know, the vine growers do the exact opposite. When they see the son coming, they saw opportunity for themselves to take advantage. They, they, they plan to kill the son, take over the vineyard for themselves. Tenants in those days could basically claim ownership of land that they had been working if the owner was absentee. The Talmud lists like three years if the owner's absentee. The, the, the tenants of that land basically take it over. 
And I know there's only a parable, so deciphering motives of the characters is a, uh, probably a little bit over-interpretation or something, but the, the hope was likely to scare off the owner, right? Look, everybody you're sending, we kill them, we beat them up, like, give up. This vineyard's ours now. We're taking this over. It's not worth your time and effort. That's, that's, we're going to retain the ownership here. Don't put in the effort. That, that seems to be sort of what they're trying to imply. The way, that's their motive. That's their, their means here. It's honestly, though, like what they're thinking is, is it's not really that important compared to the much bigger deal of that imagery of killing the owner's son, of course. This is obviously another example of Jesus predicting his own death at the hands of the Jewish leadership. The Israelites were in a position where they had no legitimate king ruling over the people to lead them in righteousness. Right? They had Herod. He was, an, I believe, an Edomite or something along those lines. He wasn't legitimate. He wasn't from the right tribe. He wasn't a, a, a Jewish king sitting on the throne of David. They had no legitimate king leading them in righteousness, ruling over the people. The priests weren't doing their job to teach them righteousness, obviously. They're letting the temple courts be corrupted. They're not pointing to the Messiah when they see him. And they had just killed the first prophet that had been sent to them in 400 years in John the Baptist, who was calling them back to righteousness, repentance. So they've got no king, no prophet, no priests doing anything according to what they're supposed to be doing. So God mercifully sent his son as a prophet, priest, and king to fulfill all those, to give them everything that they were missing. A proper priest, a proper prophet, and a proper king that would do those things, lead in righteousness, offer a sacrifice of righteousness, teach them repentance of righteousness. But they do not lament. They do not repent, and they do not accept correction. All they see in this perfect prophet, priest, and king is a threat to their power. So they seek to throw him out of the city and have him killed. They seek and succeed in having that happen. Like I said, there, there's no real mystery here in this parable. Jesus is being blunt. And the chief priests and the scribes knew that he was speaking of them. And they're so offended by this that first of all, they missed the fact that he just answered their question, that they, they had just asked him a moment before about his authority. That parable answers the question. He clearly portrays himself as the Son of God, sent by God, the owner of the vineyard, who's the owner of Israel, who planted Israel. It is God, it is Yahweh, he sends his Son. He's saying, that's who I am. You're going to kill me. He's saying, I have authority from God. So he's answering their question, if they're paying attention. They should know what authority he used to cleanse the temple. They're so offended, they can't see that. But then secondly, they're so offended that they miss the warnings that he's issuing them in verses 15 and 16 where he tells them of God's vengeance for what they will do to his son. Verse 15 and 16, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What is Yahweh going to do to the owners of the vineyard? What's he going to do to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders? They're supposed to be doing their job, teaching, leading the people of Israel. He will come and destroy these vine growers and give the vineyard to others. So the owner persists. He persisted in mercy and patience for a time. But the tenants increase in their rebellion. They step up their rebellion until finally the owner comes with a vengeance. 
Now, we just covered a few weeks ago the events of 70 AD, which Jesus prophesied in more detail when he was coming into the city. We're not going to rehash all of that, but this is surely another reference to that coming destruction in some fashion. He's coming with a vengeance. He's going to destroy you. This is all going to be wiped out, and it's going to be given to another, to others. And in that giving to others, I think we can see it fulfilled in the church. That same prophecy is fulfilled in the church being the the new vineyard of the Lord. We are the new vineyard. And it was basically turned over to mostly Gentiles. The vineyard is still God's covenant people. And it was given to the apostles, taken from the chief priests and the scribes, it's given to the apostles. It's now their job to cultivate and to prune the vine, to help it to bear fruit. And that included, in their taking care of the vine, it included the ingrafting of all believing Gentiles as the unbelieving Jews are pruned away. These vines are not producing fruit. They cut off the non-producing branches. They graft in believing Gentiles that produce fruit. God uses this imagery in Romans 11. And that leadership is then passed down. Not in literal apostolic succession, right? But in new leaders who took hold of and preserved the faith that was once for all delivered to them. We we talked about that a little bit last week when Paul is telling Timothy, take hold of that eternal life and uphold that faith, uphold the teaching. It's passing down the faith to new leaders, new vine growers, really. So Jesus was telling them, and I know he's not giving great detail to them as he's saying it, but he's telling them that unbelieving Jews are going to be cut off. Jesus is, or, or the Lord is coming with vengeance against these failed vine growers. They're going to be cut off, and the believing Jews will be supplemented, not replaced, but believing Jews will be supplemented by believing Gentiles. So physical Israel, this nation they're trying to preserve and take over for themselves, ignoring Yahweh, ignoring his law, physical Israel will become irrelevant as it is fulfilled in the new spiritual Israel of God, the new vineyard. Now, obviously, we are filling in Christ's prophecy here with descriptions by the apostles, like Paul in Romans 11 and Galatians 6, the the other imagery that we see about a new Israel, a spiritual Israel, Israel of God, the, the, the olive tree branches grafted in, things like that. We're filling it in. But this is what Jesus was referring to, and it is what happened. It was taken from them and given to others. It was given to mostly believing Gentiles, believing Jews and Gentiles. It's a warning of what's going to happen. Again, it inflames the offense of the chief priests and the scribes, and they cry out when they hear this. They cry out at the end of verse 16. May it never be. They're so angered by this idea. This is ours. May it never be that it's given to others. They're appalled at that idea of Israel being cut off of their nation losing their favored position of God's people. They took pride in that. They hate this idea. And they apparently think that killing Jesus will somehow prevent that from happening. Shoot the messenger, right? Crucify the messenger in this case. That'll prevent it. I mean, it's exactly, they're proving the truth of Christ's parable by behaving exactly like the vine growers. They react violently so that they can take for themselves what had been entrusted to them to take care of Israel. It's been entrusted to them. Well, Jesus is telling us this bad thing that we don't want to hear about. Let's just kill him. Well, he doesn't change the truth of what's happening. He's just telling you that it's going to happen. 
You can't stop the inevitable by silencing the messenger. They know Israel had a privileged position. They know that they had been benefiting from God's favor for generations. And they know that they have consistently violated the old covenant that they were under. So, even though they obviously deserve to be cut off, according to the covenant curses, they seek to silence Christ as a prophet who, again, prosecutes them by the foretelling of those curses. This is basically like, if you disobey and break the covenant, you will be cut off. That's the old covenant curse. Jesus comes and tells them that. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not producing fruit. You're going to be cut off. It's going to be given to others. After hearing their reaction of that, may it never be, when he hears that, he has one more warning for them. But, but before we get to that, let's just take note here of the, the new covenant community the new vineyard of the Lord that we are, this church now. Take note that God will be no more tolerant of new covenant churches denying Christ than he was of the the Jewish church doing so. We read in Revelation of all those warnings to the churches about potentially having their lampstands removed for drifting from the church. He says, I have these things against you. Fix these or I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. You're not going to be a church anymore. A lot of those churches didn't do it. They're wiped out. They're gone, right? We don't, we don't read or, or fellowship with the churches in Revelation because they're gone. Their lampstands were removed. And that is effectively what happened to the Jewish people for denying Christ as the Messiah. The temple has its lampstand removed, quite literally, but in its complete destruction. Obviously, the new covenant church is decentralized, so there's no singular institution that can fall away that represents all of us, right? We're decentralized. But each particular tradition, each particular denomination or congregation can fall into this trap that the chief priests and the scribes did. They can have their lampstand removed. And some are well on their way to doing so. Some have already had this happen. That promise of vengeance that was executed against the temple, and against the Jewish congregation, that is an insight into what churches today can expect when the owner of the vineyard returns. We should see in 70 AD, in their removal of the lampstand, the wiping out of that false religion, we should see in that the promise of what will happen when Christ returns. That's what he will do to false churches. And we covered the brutality of that, so we're not going to redo that. Now, like I said, after Jesus... Here's the reaction of the religious leaders to their threat, that threat of removal. He has one more warning for them. And for this, he cites the, the stone imagery that we're all very familiar with. It comes from Psalm 118, verse 22. It reads, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We covered this in Sunday school as well. It's also found in Isaiah 8. There it reads, then the Lord of hosts shall become a sanctuary to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Israel. Again, that's talking about Christ as the Messiah. He's the cornerstone. They stumble over him in not believing and then they're broken upon him. It's a snare, a trap by them not believing. And that same imagery is present in Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, as well. And I think those citations from the Old Testament prophecies where, where they come from 
I think they give us insight into the only slightly unclear portion of this whole text, and that's Christ's comment in verse 18. I want to spend a little bit of time on this because after he cites those, he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And I struggled a bit to know how to take both halves of that proverb. It's essentially a proverb, a, a promise, but a proverb too. I didn't see a whole lot of sources giving insight into it either. Um, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it. I want to dig in just a little. In English, that little conjunction there, but, you know, he has this, but, this. It makes it sound like the first half is being contrasted with the second half. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. It sounds like they're being contrasted, right? Which would mean that we would want to fall on the stone and be broken to pieces. Because the second half, being scattered like dust, that's the bad half. So it means, okay, well, we want to we fall on the stone, be broken to pieces. But obviously, we don't... That's a little confusing, right? Sort of like, it would be antithetical parallelism like Jesus uses in, in Hebrew poetry, or, or the, the poets use in Hebrew poetry, I should say. You know, like, uh, uh, being good is wise, but... A fool breaks God's law. You know, there's a contrast. In these, and that's, a, that's not a real proverb, obviously. It's just an overly simplified idea. Um, being good is wise, but a fool breaks God's law. That's antithetical parallelism. There's these two parallel things, and they're opposite of each other. But if that's what Jesus is doing then in, in verse 18, then the only way that makes sense of the statement is to think of it as a good thing to fall, to stumble over the stone and be broken on him or be broken into pieces, that doesn't sound like a good thing, generally speaking. That's not the sort of imagery that's used for something good. And it could be, and I thought this initially, that, that Jesus was maybe speaking euphemistically in the sense of being broken, like how we use it, how we see it in Psalm 51, where it says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And I was like, well, maybe that's what it's talking about, being broken in that sense. And I guess somebody could make that argument, but... I'm fairly certain that's not what Jesus means. I think he's using synonymous parallelism, where it's also another common feature of Hebrew poetry. And this time I'll give you a real example, a real proverb. A foolish son brings grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. You know, there's two lines, two ideas, and they're parallel. They're the same idea stated two different ways, right? So don't get distracted by that English word, but that makes it sound like it's contrasted. That little conjunction... In, in the Greek, it's often translated as and, it can be and, or it can even be moreover. So take verse 18 this way, Christ's final comment, take it this way. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Moreover, on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. That's the idea. It's synonymous. You don't want to stumble on the stone of Christ and be broken to pieces. You don't want him to fall on you and crush you and scatter you like dust. It's synonymous. And the reason that seems to be the better understanding is that Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28, where that stone is being spoken of, as something that, that trips up the people, it's a snare, an entrapment, it likewise cites them as falling on him and being broken. They stumble over the stone. It's a negative thing. So Jesus is using judgment language of destruction for those stumbling over Christ as the, the, the cornerstone. He's also called the stone of stumbling. That's the idea there. And that fits the context of our passage today as well, does it not? 
Jesus is speaking to Jews and he's promising destruction for those that reject him and kill him. And it's confirmed all the more of the apostles. And I'm going to give you the extended citations where the apostles used this idea from Christ, but you've, you've heard him before. Romans 9, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The Jews stumbled over Christ. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. A rock of offense. Christ offends them. What do we see from the chief priests and the scribes? They're offended at what he tells them. And they, they seek, that's why they stumble over him, is because they're offended. They, they don't take his rebuke. And react to it appropriately. First Peter 2 as well. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. It's us. That's the, that's the believing Jews and the new included Gentiles. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected... This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed, right? They're not doing their job teaching the word to help the people bear fruit. They were disobedient to the word. But you, here's the contrast, the new vineyard, the new people, the new race, the new priesthood, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What did he tell them? I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to give it to others. Those who were once not a people, but now have received mercy and now are the people of God. That's what he's talking about. This is the fulfillment. We are the fulfillment of Christ's parable here, the promises in that parable. Both places where the apostles Peter and Paul brought up that citation, it's speaking of Jews who deny Christ, who stumble over Christ, are broken by Christ, and then Gentiles who are now included by faith. That was the heart of Christ's message for the Jews in that parable. He's just days away from dying and rising again. Just a few days away, and while certainly much of the early church would be made up of Jews who did in fact believe in Jesus. A large portion, probably the majority, did not. Still true of them today. They do not believe. Not even after he was seen alive. Not even after he was seen interacting with hundreds of people at one time. Not even after they paid the Roman guards to lie about the empty tomb. Not even then would the chief priests and the scribes admit that he was the Messiah. They literally had to cover up the truth and they still wouldn't admit it. There's not a doubt in their minds. They stumbled over the stone. They were broken to pieces and then Christ fell on them in vengeance in 70 AD and they were scattered like dust. It's funny, I was, I'm thinking here of the people that advocate for denying Christ. You know, these people, they'll deny Christ no matter what. I saw a New York Times op-ed just this week. Maybe you heard about it. Because every year, when we're celebrating the Incarnation at Christmas, if we're celebrating the Resurrection at Easter, whenever they think it's our high holy days or something, as if it's 
you know, a special day, which, I mean, in a sense, I, I get it. I mean, it is. Every year, the, that, at those times, the mainstream media puts out something to attack the incarnation or the resurrection or the truth of Scripture or something. They want to put out some major piece. Happens every single time, every single year. It's, I just come to expect it. And they, don't, they don't get it. That we, we celebrate the incarnation every single Sunday. We celebrate it at the Lord's Supper. That bread and cup, that's his body and blood. He was incarnated as a true man. We celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday. The reason that we are here on a Sunday instead of a Saturday is because of the resurrection. We celebrate it every single week. We proclaim it every single week. So they don't really get it. So they try and target these, these special days of Easter and Christmas, right? And there was one, just came out today, I read it this morning, said, advocating for passing over Jesus. It's exactly like the chief priests and scribes. I read it and I was just like, this is... So you roll your eyes at the ridiculousness of it, but you know, it's, it's the same idea. God is bad. He doesn't really... They just don't get his authority to do what he does. God is bad because he does these things. They judge him by some external standard as if he's a man. Just What did the chief priests and scribes just get done doing? Jesus, you did this bad thing. You cleansed these temple courts. Who gave you the authority to do that? And that's exactly what this op-ed was. God did this bad thing. Who gives him the authority to do that? It's the same silly idea of trying to deny God and, and take from him what he has given. This world for us to serve in, we'll take it for ourselves by denying God. You know, the death of God. It's just the silliest thing, and the world is still doing it. It's a non-recognition of the holiness of God, that he can punish wickedness, that he'll come in vengeance and destroy evildoers. They have no concept of this, no concept of God's holiness, no concept of, of Jesus outraged at the wickedness in the temple courts. They're, they're upset about, who cares if he had authority to do it? He's doing the good thing. Would you get mad if, if somebody came here and saw someone breaking into our church and they stopped him because just some bystander breaking in, stopped someone for breaking in? Like, well, who gave you the right to protect our church? Who cares? He protected the church. What difference does it make? It's a good thing. Like, why would you question Jesus' authority to do the, a good thing? They don't, they don't even see the holiness of God. And so they, they react because they're, they're, they're being threatened by him, and that's that's what this op-ed was. Just another one of those. Jesus does God does bad things. Who gives him the authority to do it? It's so frustrating seeing it happen over and over. And un, every unbeliever that apostatizes does the same thing. They impress on to Scripture or onto the acts of God some external standard of of this is good or bad depending on how I feel about it, not whether or not God is the Creator. He is the Potter. He has the right over the clay. That every time that he doesn't come in vengeance, every time he's patient, they don't, they don't count that. They don't pay attention to that. They don't bring in the crucifixion and recognize that, that God offers salvation from that vengeance. There's, they just, they're blind to it. Anyway, it just frustrated me this morning, I guess. <laughs> now I will say, I am not in any way diminishing the importance of being broken and having that, that contrite heart as Psalm 51 mentions. It's absolutely an essential element of faith. I'm not, I'm not like mocking that in any sense. It's just 
not what Jesus is talking about in verse 18 when he uses that term broken. He's warning the chief priests and the scribes to not pursue righteousness by works. To not be disobedient to the word by stumbling over him as the Christ. Not, not get offended by what he's saying and stumble over him and therefore reject his message. He's telling them instead to pursue righteousness by faith, by trusting in his work to save them. To believe that testimony that he is the son of God. He's citing this scripture that God said, I'm going to put this stone, you're going to stumble over it, and you're not going to believe. And they're like, okay, we believe your word. And then the stone comes, and what do they do? They stumble, and they disbelieve. Over it. They do exactly what he says that they were going to do. And, and he, even when Jesus cites it to them, they're not, it's not clicking. All over the world today, perhaps more than in most other days, the truth of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. Millions and millions of people are hearing and believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And the reason for that is because the owner of the vineyard has come and he has given the vineyard to those who believe Jesus is alive. We believe he is who he said he is and he came from God as his son to be despised and rejected by his own people so that we might be included. So the vineyard could be turned over to others, those who do believe, us. As Isaiah 5 said later in that chapter, we didn't read it, but in verse 24, it said, For they have rejected the law of the Lord and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Rejected and despised. That's, what Je- that's how they reacted to Jesus. And that tells us that the New Covenant Church must accept and uphold the law of the Lord, what they rejected. We must adore the word of the Holy One of Israel, that which they despised, we adore. And his word says, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So today we proclaim that old truth. It's not in rebelling against the Son that the inheritance could be ours. We don't conquer God. It's not in rejecting his messages because they hurt and we don't like what he says. It's in trusting him to make us right with the owner of the vineyard. Yes, he should come to us in vengeance. But we can be made right with him by appealing to his son and his work. Jesus Christ died to save so that we can be at peace with God. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do not presume to be better than the Jews who rejected their Messiah. We know that we are no better and we are no willing to accept outside of the grace that you have worked in us, the grace that causes us to be included. But we have indeed been included in the New Covenant Church and so we give you great thanks for that mercy to us, for making us a people who were once not a people and showing us grace and mercy when we had not previously received mercy. Please continue to pour out your rich blessings on us as a congregation so that we would never have our lampstand removed. Keep us faithfully working in your vineyard. Keep us faithfully cultivating and pruning the vine to bear much fruit until your return. May we only and always pursue righteousness through faith and never through our own works. May we never stumble over Christ in any sense. We ask as well that you would do a mighty work amongst the Jewish people today who do not see Christ as their Savior. 
We pray that the Jews that we know personally, few as they may be, but the Jewish people as a whole in that nation would be turned toward Christ, that they would be jealous for the joy and the unity that we have in salvation, being the new vineyard, Lord. May they recognize Jesus as Lord in massive numbers. In the very near future, may they acquire a secure hope in the age to come like you have given to us. We pray all these things in Christ's name, the stone which the builders rejected. Amen.